So today is the last Sunday of Advent, so we're going to be concluding, finishing off our Advent series uh, today. And if we think of the traditional classic themes for each of the weeks, each of the Sundays uh, of Advent, the last one is typically love. And so that's what I want us to focus on today, to, to really take some time to focus on this theme of love, and in particular as it relates to Advent and, and sort of what Advent's all about. It's all about Christ. It's all about his birth. And so we're going to take a look at love specifically as it speaks to and relates to the birth of Christ. And what we're going to see is that, of course, Christ's coming, his birth, it's, it's filled to overflowing with love. In fact, the love of God is the driving force in his coming. It's the very reason that Christ came, because out of love for mankind, when man was stuck in his sin, no hope, no way out on our own. There's nothing we could do to fix our sin problem. There was nothing we could do to sort of dig ourselves out of that hole. Yet God, in love for us, even when we were utterly undeserving of his love, even when we were steeped in our sin, enemies of his, yet he persisted in wondrous love for us. And in that love said, I'm going to send my son. And he's going to ultimately go to a cross and take your place, take your sin, pay for your sin in full and make a way for you to be forgiven, saved, have everlasting life. And so as we think of Christ, as we think of his birth, as we think of Advent in this season, we can't help but also think of love because, in fact, that's what it's all about. It is the driving factor in the birth of Christ. It's why he came. So we're going to take a look at love, but before we sort of uh, dive into scripture and, and particularly look at love in relationship to, to Christ and his birth, I want to first talk about love generally. And love is something that we certainly talk an awful lot about in, in the church, certainly. Uh, it certainly goes to the core of, of God's very character. It's who he is. It cuts to the core of his very being. It's fundamental to who he is. He is a God of love. And of course, he commands us to live out lives of love, to, to love him, of course, to love others. And certainly, love is something, therefore, that we talk an awful lot about within the church. But love is also something that the rest of the world is interested in. It's not just something that Christians talk about, but the rest of the world kind of goes, oh, this love thing, like, forget about it, not interested in it. But rather, the rest of the world is thoroughly uh, obsessed with love, in fact, and is relentlessly pursuing love. Uh, even just sort of a casual glance at the world around us makes that very clear. You know, just sort of tune in to the radio, secular music, and what percentage of the songs wind up being all about love, an awfully high percentage, right? And people write those songs and sing, sing those songs because they desire love. It's something that is important to them, and so they wind up singing those songs. Just turn on the TV, right? You know, push that button, turn on the TV. You know, maybe you're watching a show or, or maybe you're watching a movie, whatever it may, might be. And, you know, without fail in, in most, you know, movies or long, you know, TV shows, there's some sort of plot line that's all about some romantic relationship and love. I, I certainly think of that this, this Christmas season or any Christmas season. I'll admit that, that I'm sort of one to, on occasion, tune into the Hallmark Channel, or I think it's now Hallmark Channels. I think there are multiple of them. And, you know, it's like the nonstop, like, Christmas-themed love stories. I think they all have pretty much the same plot of, like, girl who grew up in some small town but is now in the city, you know, and maybe she's some big shot executive. And now she goes back to the small town and she meets some guy. Maybe he's like the high, her high school sweetheart or maybe it's just some new guy she bumps into. And, you know, a little relationship is sort of sparked and they fall in love and so forth. I think that's every single one. I still enjoy them. I do. I, I like watching them with Liz after the kids go to bed, you know. 
Uh, but again, it's all about love, whether it's those Hallmark, you know, Christmas movies, made-for-TV movies, whether it's other movies, shows, everywhere, you know, crack a, a book, some sort of novel. I can pretty much bet that somewhere in that novel is going to be some love story that runs throughout. And it's not like we just randomly write things or, or make movies all about love just for, for no reason at all. It's because it's something that, that the whole world is very much concerned about and interested in. I mean, even if we just look at how people live their lives, think about maybe before you were married, if you're married now, you know, uh, before when you were single, probably one of the things at the forefront of your mind was, I got to find that special somebody, you know, someone that I can fall in love with. I just want a, a husband or a wife and, 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 you know, we'll fall in love, we'll get married, we'll spend the rest of our lives together. And that's not just for those of us in the church who might have felt that way, but again, just look at the world around us. People are relentlessly pursuing that love of that significant other to love someone and be loved by them, right? This is something that our whole world is concerned with and interested in, this idea of love. And there's good reason for it. In fact, it's the way we were made. It's the way we're wired. That's the way God made us. He made us to be in loving relationships. He made us to love himself, to love God and be loved by him. He made us to love others and to be loved by others. And so we, we still live that out. We still live that out even on, in a broken, fallen world. Certainly the way in which we see love around us is broken and fallen and corrupted as everything is, of course. But nonetheless, that still remains. There is still this, this desire within us to love and to be loved. And again, that's just the way God made us and wired us. And he made us that way as a reflection of his own character. The way he made mankind was to be reflective of, of his own character. He made us in his image. And that means just as he is a God of love, he makes us to be people who are a people of love, to love others and be loved by others, and, and of course, to love God and be loved by him. And so this is something that, that everyone in our world is concerned about, right? And as I mentioned, people love these love stories, and the reality is, as we think about Advent, as we think about the birth of Christ, and as we think about how that relates to this topic of love, in a sense, as we think about it, we actually have right before us the greatest love story of all time. That's the reality of it. As we think of, of what Christ did, he came and what he came to do, going to a cross, of course, uh, rescuing mankind from his sin. This is the greatest, most wondrous love story of all time. That man, even though he was in rebellion, Right? We think of that story, go all the way back to Adam and Eve. They ate that fruit, of course, that they were not to eat, rebelled. And ever since then, mankind has been in complete rebellion to God and justly under his wrath. That's the reality of it. Sort of the bad news that we see in Scripture. People don't always love to talk about sin and its consequences and punishments. But, but of course, that's the reality. We've sinned and we deserve punishment. But that isn't the end of the story, of course. But God just so wondrously loves us. Again, it's just sort of who he is. It's his very character. He so wondrously loves us that he says, I'm not going to leave you stuck in your sin with no hope, no way out. But of course, he says, I have this wondrous rescue mission that I'm going to execute and put into place. And he does. He sends his son to become one of us, born of a virgin, of course, Christ Jesus himself. He sends him into this world on this great rescue mission to deliver us, rescue us from our sin. And he did it, to be sure. He accomplished it. And in order to appreciate the wonder of that great, that greatest love story of all time, I want to sort of tell the story of humanity if that hadn't been the case. In a sense, to, to sort of flip things over and say, well, what if God hadn't loved mankind? 
What, what would have happened? What would be sort of the way things play out? And I'd say it would have played out in sort of you know, one of two possible ways. So you have God and he creates everything and it's all good and it's all perfect, of course. And then we have, you know, the usual Adam and Eve story and what takes place. Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They disobey his command. And, and this is a possibility. If we think about God operating, if he hadn't had love for mankind, persisted in love and rescued mankind, what would have happened? Well, perhaps right at that moment, he would have said, that's it. That's the end of the story for humanity. I'm done with this mankind. They've rebelled against me, Adam and Eve. And he just tosses them justly so into the fiery pit of hell and says, that's it. I'm done with man. He's sinned. He's rebelled against me. End of story. Or, or perhaps here's the other option. Maybe uh, he says, I'll still allow mankind to live on this earth generation after generation. But again, it's still the same outcome. We have man wicked in sin, justly deserving the wrath of God. And again, no hope, no way out on our own. If God hadn't had this love for us and, and in love, hadn't gone about rescuing us from our sin, then all of mankind, generation after generation, condemned to eternal punishment and no hope. And that, that's how it would have gone. That's how the story would have played out for mankind had it not been for the love of God. And as we think about that, I think that should give us a greater sense and appreciation for the wondrous love of God, that, that we're these filthy, wretched creatures, and yet he's just so amazing and wondrous in love that he says, even though you've rebelled against me, even though you're vile and wicked and sinful, yet I love you, and I love you so much that, that I will, at great cost to myself, rescue you from your sin. And so he sends his son to go and die on the cross for us, this greatest love story of all time. And I want to now take a look at scripture that's really going to substantiate all that we've just sort of talked about here. But I want to turn first to John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, certainly some well-known verses there. And I'll read it for us. Here's what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, I just want to explain a little bit about this, this verse that I think is often misunderstood, uh, not that it's central to what we're talking about. If you've heard me preach on this passage before, you've probably heard this. Uh, but oftentimes the way this is rendered is, for God so loved the world in the sense of so much. That's theologically true, that's accurate, but that's not what's said in this verse. So here means in the sense of in this way. Uh, in English, it's a little bit ambiguous. You could sort of interpret it either way. In the Greek, it's not ambiguous. It's very clear. It's in this way, God loved the world. And then we're told in what way. Namely, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So yes, God loved us so much. That's theologically true. But I just want us to understand exactly what's being said here. But nonetheless, here, here's what we're told here. We're told that, that as we think again of, of Advent, what this season's all about, the birth of Christ, his coming to, to this earth, it, it tells us what drove it all, what motivated it all. It says, right, in this way, God loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That as God so wondrously loves mankind, has loved mankind, that he sent his son to come here to this earth to, to, to humble himself, become a human being just like you, just like me, but with great purpose, not just coming here for no reason at all and just to hang out, but, but of course with great intent, with great purpose, to head to a cross to deal with our sin, that sin that we have no ability to deal with on our own. We can't, we can't fix that problem on our own. But God says, I will send my son. In great, wondrous love for mankind, I will send my son to go and deal with this sin problem that you can't deal with. He'll go to, to a cross. He'll make atonement for sin. And all who repent and believe in him will have everlasting 
life. And so thoroughly, this, this birth of Christ and, and what it's all about, at the root of it, at the foundation of it, is the love of God. It's what drove it. Christ, if not for the love of God, he wouldn't have come. Why would he have come? What would be the reason? What would be the driving force? But rather, it's all about the love of God. And in that wondrous love, he sent his son to come and rescue us from our sin. And now I want to go, we're in the Gospel of John, but now I want to turn to uh, the first epistle of John. This is 1 John chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2. And here we're going to continue to see the wondrous love of God. Here's what it says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. Right? Here's what's being said. God has loved us so wondrously that he has made us his children. It's not just as we look back to the Gospel of John chapter 3. This is true, but this isn't all of it. Yes, in love he sent his son to rescue us from, from our sin, the, the sin that we couldn't get ourselves out of. We were hopeless on our own. He sent his son to rescue us, to, to bring about forgiveness, atonement, forgiveness, salvation, everlasting life. But he also, in love, in, in his son, has brought about what for us? He has made us his children, right? See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. It's not just that he's rescued us from our sin problem. That's thoroughly true. He has. But also in love, not only in love has he rescued us from our sin problem, but also in love he has made us his adopted children. And as we think about that, it should sort of blow our minds. We should think, you know, who could fathom this? Who could imagine that, that we as mere human beings would become children of God? And yet that is the standing that he has graciously given to us, again, in love. Because of his wondrous love for us, he has made us his children. Not just rescuing us from our sin problem, but then that's it. But then saying, and I'll make you my very children. And it goes on. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Right? To put it simply, in a sense, what John's saying here is, we're already God's children, and that's wondrous, and he's already spoken of that in the prior verse. But he says this even more. It's not like the way things are now, that's it. That, that's sort of the end of the story. Yeah, we're God's children, but you're still going to keep struggling with sin. I'm going to keep struggling with sin. This, all, all the imperfections around us, you know, the death, the, the, the pain, the suffering, that's just going to keep on going. No, John says it's not like that's the end of the story, but there's more. There's more in store for us. For us. Yes, we're already God's children, but ultimately Christ is going to come back. And when he does, he's going to complete his wondrous, redemptive, restorative work. And so when Christ comes back, what is he going to do? Well, he's going to make us perfect. We will be made perfect one day. It's not like we're just going to keep on sinning. Yeah, we're forgiven, but we're still these broken, fallen creatures, and we're going to go on sinning for all of eternity and struggling with sin. No, we will be made perfect. We will be just like him, perfectly righteous and holy. Right? And that will happen when we die and go to be with the Lord, or when he comes and returns, whichever comes first. But we will be made perfect. But not only that, this new created order that he's going to usher in when he returns. And everything will be perfect. Every imperfection that you can think of in this present day and age, that'll be done away with. That'll be gone. And we will have a share in this new created order. And we will reign with Christ over this new created order. And everything will be glorious. Everything will be perfect. And so John's saying, you're already God's children, but there's more. There is more to come. There is this glorious inheritance and hope, sure hope in store for us for all of eternity. 
And again, this is all rooted in God's love for us. In his love, he has given us all of these wondrous things in Christ Jesus. In love, he came and rescued us from our sin, made atonement, brings about forgiveness, of course, for us, for all who repent and believe in him. We're saved. We're made God's very children. But we also have this glorious inheritance. It's not like this is all there is to it, but we'll be made perfect. We will be made like Christ. We will reign with him. There'll be a new created order. We'll be a part of it. Everything will be glorious and perfect. That's what's in store for us. And God gives all of that to us in love, in his son, Jesus Christ. I want to now flip just one chapter later. So we're still in 1 John, but now we're going to look at chapter 4. And this is verses 7 through 12. And let me read it for us now. It says, John writing here, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Right? And that, that's so important. What, what John says there at the, the end, that I, end part there that I just read. God is love. It, it's saying who God is here. What, what sort of cuts to the core of his very character. Who is he? Fundamentally, who is, who is God? What is he like? He is a God of love. Love is foundational, fundamental to who he is. And then he goes on. This is how God showed his love among us. So God's a God of love. It's who he is. But now he's going to speak to how God operates in that love, how he expresses that love and shows that love in action. So he says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And he goes on. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Again, saying God is a God of love. It's who he is. And in his loving character and love toward mankind, again, even when man was stuck in his sin in rebellion to God, God said, I still love you so wondrously and persistently in an enduring way that I'm going to send my son into the world and not for no reason at all, but ultimately on a great rescue mission to rescue mankind, deliver him from sin. And that's what he does. And now as we get to verse 11 here, we see sort of the next logical step in John's train of thought. So he speaks to, well, here's God, his character. He's a God of love. And then he sort of goes on from there. Well, this is how God shows his love. Of course, he sends his son, right, into this world and ultimately heads to a cross to make atonement for sin and rescue mankind in love. But now we see in verse 11 sort of the next step in this train of thought and logic. And he says, dear friends... Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Right? And so, well, God's a God of love and we see all of the ways in which God has shown his love toward us. And then sort of the next logical step is you're thinking about God as a God of love and the way in which he's shown his love toward us, sending his son to make atonement for sin on the cross to rescue us from our sin problem. The next logical thought is, well, if God's a God of love and we're his children and we belong to him and we serve him and, and we were made from the very beginning to reflect his character, we were made in his image, that, then it only sort of flows logically from that, that we are to be a people of love, that we are to love just as God has loved us, just as God has loved wondrously so, we are to be a people of love and love others just as God has loved us. And that's what he says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And we really see this same idea echoed in our last passage that we're going to turn to, and it's in Ephesians. So Paul writing here, this is chapter 5, and it's verses 1 and 2. And Paul says here, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, 
And so Paul here, he's using this imagery, this metaphor of sort of children in relationship to parents. And the reality is, think of young kids. They, they sort of emulate their parents. They, they idolize their parents. They look up to them. They think they're just the greatest thing. Think of, you know, a little son looking up to his father, and he just wants to be just like dad. Dad's the coolest thing. He's the greatest thing. And I just want to be just like him. And naturally, they imitate their parents. Sons will imitate their fathers, their daughters, their mothers. It's, it's just natural. And he's using that imagery, that, that sort of metaphor, and he's saying, hey, we're God's children. We're his beloved children, and we ought to imitate our heavenly father. Just as little children naturally imitate their parents, we as God's children should be imitating him. And then he goes on here in, in verse 2, and he says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so not only does he say, hey, let's imitate our heavenly father, he also says, let's imitate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so we're to follow the lead of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to live out Christ-like lives, follow the example he has set, reflect his character. And again, his character, well, at the root of it is love. And we see that in his action, as he says, right? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so just as Christ has loved us, and wondrously so, self-sacrificially giving of himself to the point of going to a cross to rescue us, that's the kind of wondrous love that Christ has shown us. And he says, that's the way we're to live. We're to have that kind of love toward others as well. And so we are to follow the lead of our Heavenly Father. We're to follow the lead of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and be living out lives of love. And so here's sort of then as we move into application, the natural question for us to ask is, is in effect, how are we doing at that? How are we doing with that? Are we living out lives of love faithfully? Right? Are we reflecting Christ-like love? Are we loving the way that Christ has loved us? Are we loving others the way that God has loved us so wondrously, so self-sacrificially, so radically, right, that he sent his son to suffer and die for us that we might be reconciled to him, have everlasting life? I mean, that's the wondrous love of God. That's the wondrous love of Christ. And we're told that's how we're to love. And so we should be asking ourselves, are we loving that way? and be honest with ourselves, and probably, probably if we're going to sort of evaluate the realities, of course we fall short of God's perfect standard. We know that. But if we sort of analyze our lives and how we're loving people, this is certainly the case for me. Probably it's pretty similar for you guys. You could probably think of some people that you're loving pretty well, not perfectly, and there's always room for growth, and we should be challenging ourselves to grow uh, in every way. Uh, But you could probably think of maybe your spouse or maybe your kids or other close family and say, you know, yeah, I'm I'm loving my wife pretty well, or I'm loving my husband well, or my kids, and so forth. Uh, But probably the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, there's a whole host of people in the world we're all too apathetic toward. If we really think of uh, the command that is upon us to be loving all people everywhere profoundly, radically, I think if we're honest with ourselves, again, that I think we're just all too indifferent toward most people. You know, think of the person living up, you know, just up the street from you, your neighbors. I mean, maybe you're pretty close with some of your neighbors, but maybe there are some where it's not like you wish them ill or harm, but you just, they're not part of your inner circle. I think this is sort of probably the reality for most of us. We kind of have like our inner circle of people that we really care about, we really love, and we're doing a decent job, a pretty good job of loving those people. But then there's all the other people in the world who are sort of on the outside, and it's kind of you know, I hope things go well for you, but I don't really have time to be invested in your life. I'm just all too apathetic toward you. You know, if things go well, great. If not, too bad, not, not my problem. 
I think that's the way we regard almost everyone, again, if you think of the seven plus billion people in the world, and I know we can't be personally engaged in the lives of seven billion people, but nonetheless, we should have a profound heart and love for people everywhere, not just the, the one or two dozen people in our little inner circle and we care about them, but nobody else. We have a radical, profound love. And I want to use a, a couple of examples that sort of highlight this, this love that we're called to really live out. And the first I want to take a look at is the example we saw in the video that we watched. Sort of thinking of that church over in Nepal and, and uh, just thinking of their love for the community around them where, you know, they've been in tough times. Uh, times aren't easy in Nepal, period, as by an American standard, sense of standards and so forth. We're awfully affluent. We have an awful lot. Just generally, even when times are good, it's not like they're as easy and comfortable and everyone's well off like here in the U.S. But especially then when the pandemic hit and things were shut down, it's just economically, you know, poverty was, was on the rise. There were people who literally just didn't even have food to eat. And their response wasn't, you know, you're not in my little inner circle of, you know, 20 people that I really love and care about. And you're not in that circle, you're on the outside. So, you know, I'm a little bit indifferent toward you, apathetic, you know, too bad. I hope things work out for you, but I'm not gonna be invested in it. But no, they said, you know, we need to love all people everywhere. And so even as they saw people who were in need, they saw people going hungry, they said, we gotta help these people. Even though they're saying, we don't have a lot. It's not like they're all wealthy and rich and have the, the money and means to do it. But even out of the scarcity that they have, they say, we need to help these people and give and meet them, meet their needs in their hour of need and provide food to the hungry. And they did that. And they faithfully did that. And not only that, but now they're recognizing this, this further needs. You know, we're entering into this cold season and there are people who, they don't have clothing for the weather. They're going to be out in the cold, freezing, and, and perhaps even to the extent of lives being at risk as a result. And recognizing those needs and, again, responding in love. They just have love for these people. Even if they don't know them personally, they see them, they see the needs, and, and they have this Christ-like heart of love for them and compassion for them and say, we got to get you warm clothing. That's just what the church, what Christians, what followers of the Lord ought to do. That should be the natural response is in love to see those needs and say, we just want to meet them. Even if, hey, even if I don't have a lot, what little I have, I'll, I'll share with you and give to you to help meet your needs. And, and that's their heart attitude, and so they're looking to be able to, to do that and hopefully we can help them in some sort of way in, in that endeavor but again that's that's what the church ought to look like that, that's what we as christians ought to look like where there's just this profound and deep love for all people everywhere again not just sort of a, a 10 or 20 people who are your inner circle and you care about them and everybody else you're just sort of acquaintances with or maybe you don't even know them but again there's no real deep love and willingness to sacrifice of self for others no we're to follow the lead of that church in Nepal where we're just loving people everywhere and as we see needs in love we're just going to go and, and meet those needs. I want to use a, another example that's maybe a little closer to home and not way off in Nepal or so forth though certainly those principles are relevant in our li lives here uh, but I want to give Liz a little bit of credit this was something that just played out this week you know I'm sure God's working in handiwork and as it's playing out I'm figuring oh this is this is like perfect for a sermon illustration for what I'm going to be preaching on. Uh, and sort of here's the story, and this relates to just, you know, having love for, for a neighbor who lives up the street and, and even making sacrifices of self for the sake of that person. Uh, but here's sort of what played out. There's someone who lives up the street. I'm not going to give specifics and so forth, but someone who lives in our neighborhood up the street on Robin Road um, and hasn't been going through an easy time. Sort of times have been tough, uh, certainly a lot of struggles for her, for her family. 
Um, and just to give you a sense of this person, this isn't to pass judgment, it's just in your minds to have a sense of, of what this person's like. This is someone who's very far from God. In fact, by her own words, she, she won't even use the word God. That's somehow offensive to her. It's just something that, that, that you know, is off-putting to her. She can't even speak the word God. She doesn't want to, to, to even speak of such a thing. And of course, her, of course, her uh, view of that is really the Christian God. So this is how far she is from God that she doesn't even want to talk about God. She doesn't want to even speak of him, use any word that, that makes reference to him. She'll speak of some sort of generic higher power, that sort of a thing. But she is very far from the Lord. And even as you look at her life and the way that she's living it, it, it speaks to that certainly and reaffirms that, that she doesn't really want anything to do with God or, or his ways. And again, I don't say that in the sense of passing judgment upon her, but that type of person is not always the easiest to be around as a Christian. This is somebody who uh, viscerally hates everything you, you love, everything you stand for, everything you believe in, everything that, that matters to you, that's at the core of your life this person just spits on and hates and strongly so. And it's not always easy to be around those types of people. It's just difficult. There's not a lot in common. It's not like conversation's gonna flow as easily. They're not as open to what you might have to say or what's important to you and so forth. And what wound up playing out this week is this person sort of has been very isolated, has been sort of, you know, not often leaving the walls of her home, you know, concerned about the pandemic and so forth, hasn't really had much social interaction, has been struggling with that, and wanted to get together with Liz. And uh, ultimately, the timing of this was that she wanted to get together on Tuesday night. I, I was in a board meeting, so I, I had that going on inside. Um, you know, on my computer, on the Zoom meeting. But, but while I was doing that, while the kids were in bed, you know, they had gone to bed asleep, she wanted to get together, not in the house where it's sort of comfy and cozy and warm because she was concerned about, about the coronavirus, wanted to get together outside. It's, it's nighttime, we're talking like 7.30, 8 o'clock when they started meeting and then, and then later. Uh, you may not remember, well, what was the weather Tuesday night? I remember because it was relevant, but, but it was cold and it was windy. It was pretty frigid outside. And she wants to get together outside in our backyard around the fire pit. I mean, it's not some big fire pit. I don't think it really threw any significant heat. And I'm sure in Liz's mind, if she's sort of thinking selfishly and what she wants to do, she's probably thinking, this is like the last thing on my list of what I want to do. Like, you know, I got four kids, life's busy, I've been, you know, spending all day with them, I'd like to sort of plop down and relax on the couch. Not only that, I'm homeschooling them because of this pandemic and everything, life's busy, we're, we're sort of like in the, you know, the last week or 10 days of, of Advent leading up to Christmas, like there are presents to wrap for the kids, there are things to do. Uh, I'm sure last on her mind is go and sit outside in the freezing cold with someone who's not easy to get along with. Uh, and yet she recognized, you know what, I, I can't be selfish. This isn't about me. I need to respond in love. I need to love this person, uh, even though she is difficult to be around, even though she does have nothing but hatred for God. Nonetheless, I need to love this person. And that's going to mean making a sacrifice and sitting outside in the freezing cold just to socialize, just to be present with her, to support her, to meet needs. Uh, and she was faithful, and, and she did that, and she wound up being outside and, and hanging out with this person, and I think it was a blessing to, to the person who lives up the street and was able to have some social interaction and so forth. But I use that just as an example of, you know, are, are we living out love in that sort of a way? Where the person who lives up the street that, you know, it can be easy to kind of blow off and say, you know, life's busy. 
I don't have time for that person. You know, I, I can't be making sacrifices for them and so forth. And just sort of having our own little world, you know, our own little inner circle of people that we sort of care about, that's sort of our world, our lives, and everyone on the outside, it's sort of we shut them out. I hope things go well for you, but yeah, I'm not going to be invested in your life. I'm not going to love you in any sort of significant way. It's easy to have that mindset. And I'd say we can't. We need to reflect Christ-like love, the wondrous love of God, again, that, that he was willing to send his son to suffer and die for us, that we might be forgiven, have everlasting life. That, that's the kind of love we're called to have for others, that radical, self-sacrificial kind of love that I think that story wonderfully exemplifies. I'm not saying Liz is perfect in love. You know, I'm not saying that. She isn't, nor am I, nor is any one of us. But nonetheless, we're called to have that kind of love. And I want to kind of come back big picture and really give a few closing challenges for us. As we think about Advent and we're sort of nearing the end, this sort of home stretch of Advent, as we think about what it's all about, Christ, his birth, I want us to not lose sight of what's at the root of it all, and that's the wondrous love of God that drove him to send his son to come here to die on the cross that we might be reconciled to God, forgiven, have everlasting life. Don't lose sight of that wondrous love of God. And, and as you think about it, this Advent season, what remains of it, as you th and even after, don't just only do this in the midst of Advent, but as you sort of think about and ponder the wondrous, glorious, unfathomable love of God, just delight in it, rejoice in it. It should be a source of wondrous joy and delight in our lives and celebration where it's just the natural response as we think about that is just to be in awe of God and his wondrous love and to realize God loves me wretched sinful me he loves me that wondrously that he gave his son for me that, that i stand in that wondrous love of god to, to just think about that and ponder it and just be blown away and just rejoice rejoice in the lord rejoice in his love rejoice in what he did for us in love for us dying for us to reconcile us to himself i just want us as we ponder it to be rejoicing and delighting in it and then naturally just pouring forth thanksgiving and praise and saying god thank you for your love and thank you for your love in action, what you did for me in love, and just praising him, thanking him for it. But then I want us to take another step and to recognize, again, we're to reflect God's character. We're to live out Christ-like lives. We are to reflect that wondrous love of Christ in our lives. And I want us to be asking ourselves, are we really living it out faithfully? Maybe in some areas, somewhat faithfully, but really to challenge ourselves in every human interaction, in every relationship that we have, you know, are we really faithfully living it out and challenging ourselves to be like that church in Nepal or to be like Liz in the case of just loving that neighbor up the street? Let's be God's people who really take that seriously and live out wondrous Christ-like love, first and foremost for God's glory, because when we do that, God's going to be glorified and honored in the midst of that, but also recognizing that it's going to be a powerful witness for Christ as we're living out uh, wondrous lives of love, if we're living out Christ-like love, people are going to take notice. We live in a world that's pretty sort of self-seeking, dog-eat-dog. People will do anything to advance themselves and get what they want, even if they sort of trample on other people in the process. And then when they look and they see these Christians and the church and they say they're different, they're willing to put themselves out for others. They're willing to sacrifice of themselves in love for others. And when people see that and take note, they say, there's something different about that in a, in a good way, in a wondrous way, in, in a sense of, I want some of that. I want that kind of love in my life. And it draws them in, and it can be a powerful witness for Christ. And so we need to live out lives of love for God, for his glory, but also that we might be a better witness for Christ. 
but also understanding ultimately it's also in our own self-interest. If we're really filled with love for others, and if we're really living that out in daily life, it just brings such joy to the heart, to the soul, as we exhibit that, as we are just saturated with love. There's just a great joy and blessing that comes from that. And also the knowledge that as we're faithful to that command to love others, God's just going to bless that. And so it's even in our own self-interest. Not that that should be our chief reason for doing it. It should be for God, for his glory. But nonetheless, it's in our own interest as well to live this out. And so I just want to challenge us to be a people of wondrous, Christ-like, radical love. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your love. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us enough, even in our sinfulness and filthiness, wretchedness. That's the truth of it, Lord. Even in that situation, you wondrously loved us enough that you came here. You became one of us. You were born of a virgin so long ago to rescue us, to head to a cross and rescue us from our sin. May we just be in awe of you, be in awe of your love and what you have done for us in love. May we just rejoice in it, delight in it, give you thanks for it and praise you. But may we also recognize we are to reflect that very same love, that wondrous, radical, Christ-like love should be seen in our lives day in and day out. And if we're honest, all too often we don't live that out. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just work in our hearts, cultivate that Christ-like love within us, that we might live it out day after day for your glory, that we might be better witnesses for you, and also knowing it will result in great blessing for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.